0: So thank you very much first for inviting me, very happy to be here. And what I'll be doing is presenting some of the findings of our research project. Um, So we started in October last year, I'm kind of coming to the end of it, or at least supposedly so. We presented some of the findings at the European Parliament in Brussels yesterday, which was really interesting, because obviously everyone wanted to talk about Brexit rather than anything else. Um, but the kind of you know sentiment that you were speaking about was certainly also there. The sort of normalization of racism, xenophobia, and what effects will this have, on migrants as well, was, was was very much present. As well as the Brussels side just generally being fed up with the UK. But let's let's leave that to decide for now. Um, right. What I'll do, I'll I'd like to. So this is more about the kind of what happens before people arrive in the UK. That's kind of what we looked at. Um, how do people move? What are sort of what kind of the points through? Uh, which they transit so the focus has been on on transit points as well as the ways in which people are managed on the way so i'll give a little bit of uh, background first just before i start with that then speak about that and some of our findings um of the research okay now before i go to that what i'll do is bring this one up because this is quite um so this is nothing to do with our project but i thought it was a really interesting website i hope you can see it um so this is Uh, showing the flows of migrants uh, to Europe and also across Europe. So you can also go to one country, for instance, let's say if I go to Poland, I can see it's mostly people from Russia coming in, um, for instance. Um, Or if I go to Germany here, um, we can see sort of where people are coming from. And we can see the numbers as well. I think in some ways, this is a really useful way of thinking. Where do people come from? Right. Um, So it gives us some numbers and so on. Fantastic. Yet. There's a lot that this doesn't show. For instance, where are the borders, right? Where do people get hauled up? When do they get pushed back, right? What are the effects of someone who, say, gets fingerprinted over here, right? So those are the kind of things we've looked at. So whilst this is useful, um, we've done slight, something slightly different with our research. So let me go back to the PowerPoint. Question, um, and that is so. the other, You can't see very well, if you unfortunately. That's Africa. And you can see sort of Europe here. The Mediterranean is, um, is over here. My question is, in a way, quite a simple one, but also quite a complex one, which is, where is the border? So, where is the border of Europe? If we are looking at this map, does anyone have an idea about that? Well, it's being pushed
1: back to. Turkey
0: and um, Northern Africa. Okay, yeah, very good point. Um, So usually we think, usually when we think about the migration crisis so-called, we start thinking when people arrive at our European shores, right? But actually, as you can see here, there are long journeys before that actually, sometimes the largest part of the journey actually is outside of Europe before that. In addition to that, People might actually, the border might be taking place somewhere here or here. You were already said in Turkey, elsewhere. We can see that with the EU. Turkey deal. Um, but also, actually, the first point is where someone applies for a visa. Somewhere, say, in a visa office somewhere in Africa or in the Middle East, and might be stopped there already. So this is where the border takes place. And to some extent, it's Europeans doing that. And to some extent, it's actually European authorities saying to saying African authorities, you go and do that border work for us. So when we think about the border, I think we shouldn't just focus on Europe, but we should have a focus that's much broader, um, thinking also what happened actually outside of Europe. So that's one thing. Our research project hasn't done so much of that, but I think it's an important thing to think about. This is not just a European thing, a European crisis. A lot happens outside of Europe. Plus, also, um, if we think about it sort of on a more global scale, um and look at forced migrants about 86 percent of refugees are outside of europe right uh, or outside of the sort of the north um or sort of the global north or, or the west um and even with this so-called crisis about sort of um one million a bit more now people that have actually come to europe There are three million people refugees in turkey for instance right um and Lebanon and Jordan have got sort of very large numbers as well. So again, this idea that everyone's coming to Europe is absolutely untrue. So that just as a sort of general context. Then I want to say something about these distinctions as well that we often make between migrants, refugees, asylum seekers. And on the one hand, I can see that these are sort of important, say, okay, um, who's claimed asylum, for instance, and who's been given asylum so that then becomes a refugee. But at the same time, that is also a form of Bordering, right? We're not naturally a refugee or asylum seeker and so on. And the distinction between being a so called economic migrant and a political refugee in practice is very problematic and often falls down. Because what it means actually is what we're doing, we're making this distinction saying, well, some people are worthy of our protection, others are not, right? And the basis upon which those distinctions are made is often really problematic. And I'll say a little bit more about that later on. But just to give you one example, some people we were speaking to doing our research in um, uh, in Sicily had come from Libya. That is to say, they were working in Libya, right? They weren't actually Libyans. So they were sub-Saharan African. At some point, they left because, due to poverty, due to other issues, um, they were working in Libya perfectly fine. Well, of course, some are exploited as well. Other people are okay. Working in Libya. Now, when the bomb started falling in Libya, um, and generally when um, the Gaddafi regime fell apart, what happened is some people were fleeing the violence there, others were literally forced onto a boat, right? At the moment they arrive in Sicily and the Italian authorities are assessing them, they are, they're saying, okay, so where are you from? And they might be saying, okay, I'm from, I don't know, Gambia or something. It's like, okay, that means you're an economic migrant. Um, because you were not fleeing persecution. It was like, well, the bombs were falling, I must fleeing persecution, right? Um, So at that point, it's already very difficult to say, well, is this an economic migrant? is this a refugee, right? Um, At the same time also, absolutely everyone we spoke to, and we did about 100 interviews all together, wanted to work, right? Didn't mean that they weren't fleeing violence, persecution. They were often doing that as well, right? But of course, they also want to work. They're also people with agency, right? So again, just as a point, on the site there now let me come back to our search project so the idea really is to map migration trajectories transit points I'll come back to that in a minute and migration management policies across Europe in order to kind of develop a more humanitarian response to the crisis rather than a securitarian one which is what is often happening and these are some of the, the pictures and I'll speak more about these uh, as well, so that's a jungle in Calais, that we've probably all heard about. This was a school in Paris that a lot of people probably won't have heard about, that was housing about 700 1, people and was forcefully evicted by the French authorities just after we left, actually. And this is one of the hotspots um, in Lampedusa. But I'll come back um, to these points. So, as I already said, we conducted uh, qualitative of fieldwork, some interviews, in six different <coughs> transit points across Europe. So um, Lampedusa, Sicily, um, Milan, Marseille, Paris, and Calais. And we'll still be doing some work in London, actually, as well, and see what happens when sort of people kind of arrive.
1: I just kept, uh, a bit of confusion between the, the term refugee and, and asylum seeker. Would
0: you, sure, do you yeah. know the difference? Okay, so an asylum seeker is usually someone who has claimed asylum, who's asking for protection. are saying I've been fleeing persecution, I'm asking for protection. Once that status has been granted, it becomes a refugee. Okay. But that's a that's a good question. I usually just use the term migrant and for me that's everyone without any political meaning to it. Right? Because I find the distinction very really um, okay. about Let's see where we're um. Okay, right. Let me get on. Oh, let me say something uh, first about uh, the transit points. So what we mean by transit points are really the spaces where people sort of stay and move through. So they are institutionalized ones, such as hotspots, detention centers, reception centers, and so on. So we looked at these, but also the informal ones. Um, So if we go back to this slide, like this squat here in the former school or or Calais, the jungle there, we can also think about, for instance, the Idomene camp at the Greek Macedonian border. Um, So these are much more sort of informalized spaces. Um, We see, to some extent, similar things happening there, but also in other ways, they're quite different. So that's really the focus of our research. Now, very briefly, these are kind of some of the key findings. Um, and the, one, the first one is really thinking about how are we framing this issue? What does it to speak in terms of crisis, for instance? Um, so I think we have to have much more focus on the political and humanitarian aspects of something that's often be said to be a security crisis. And also, the other thing is thinking about refugees, migrants, not just as passive victims, or, you know, people that come and steal our jobs and so on, or as commodities, but also actually as active agents. They go through an awful lot of hardship. um, But at the same time, um, they're also sort of independent people, often with a lot of determination, and so on. And the second thing is really looking at what are the effects of migration management policies. So the borders that we see, but also um, fingerprinting and so on. And what we've seen over the past year unfortunately, is really increasingly coercive nature of migration management. That includes police violence, denial of access to the asylum system for those who want to claim asylum, as well as uh, reception conditions, but also the destruction of living spaces of people. Okay. Very quickly, I just want to ask, what do you think might be the advantages and disadvantages of calling something a crisis
1: just saying that it's our problem
0: okay if you say it's a crisis then at least we have to do something about it yeah. okay
1: yeah oh. <laughs> so from a from a legal perspective i uh, i would automatically assume that in a crisis situation uh, uh, certain rules might be suspended or certain Extraordinary measures might be introduced in order to deal with uh, something that's out of the ordinary.
0: Okay, absolutely. I
1: was going to say I think it depends what sort of crisis it is. If mm. it's a humanitarian crisis, yes, it has advantages. But if it's a refugee crisis, it, it shifts the focus.
0: Okay, absolutely. Yeah. The word
1: itself is like an emotional
0: word, so it takes away kind of the facts of the situation rather than what's really going like mm. on. Things out So we can see there's some advantages, like, you know, taking responsibility and perhaps really thinking about, OK, what kind of crisis is this? Is humanitarian might need to intervene in some ways? But what has happened already, um, noted this earlier, it's mostly seen as a crisis of security and we get the emotional response. But also, as you said, we get these kind of crisis measures. Right. And these are often not in line with the rule of law, with fundamental rights. So that's been um, a huge issue. So the issue is that I would argue it's a political crisis and a humanitarian crisis. It's not so much a security crisis, but that's how it's been framed. And that leads to crisis like decision-making as well as a proliferation of borders. Um, so really, what, what I would argue is often the crisis is set to be people coming to our shores. Right? I would argue the crisis is in people not being allowed to get, people are not being allowed to move on at the borders, or even reach Europe, even get there, uh, or being forced um, onto, you know, um, very dodgy boats, and, and so on, right, having uh, only a very, um, only a le- no legal way to get into Europe, so only in a regular way, but also only a very dangerous way, and a very expensive way, right, uh, so if there's a crisis, I would say, that's where the crisis lies. so we need to sort of rethink um, how we think about it. Um, these issues. And really saying something, it is a crisis in terms of a security crisis, that means there is a threat, that means we need, you know, certain security measures and so on, which is exactly what's happened and it's been um, usually problematic. And the other point I I mentioned as well is that it helps to sort of the proliferation of borders. So I was speaking about that earlier as well, whereby the border gets externalised, but also we see sort of the technological border um, being applied um, a lot more as well, as sort of even mental borders as well. Um, so that's on the one hand, people say are already stopped somewhere in a visa office in Africa or in the Middle East, and because they're being stopped there and they can't get a visa, they might see the only way out um, to get onto a vote. There are also carrier sanctions. I don't know whether you've heard about this, but that means actually what the EU has done has pushed a responsibility um, of actually taking people without visas to the airlines. So if an airline takes someone who doesn't have a visa or doesn't have sort of the right papers, and that's found out at the other end, then the airline has to pay the fine. Meaning a lot of airlines are saying, okay, we're not even getting, gonna get into this. So they don't take people um, who don't have the right papers. So that's another issue as well. Having said that, up to, at least up to last year, most people still arrived at airports, and not by boat, right? Uh, I don't know what the exact numbers are at the moment, but still, there's a lot of people actually who conferences on tourist visas or on fake visas, fake passports, and so on. Okay, so what does this mean? It means we need to rethink what we mean by a route or a flow, because often, actually, due to all these borders um, and due to all these issues, it's not a linear route, right? It's not just going from A to B, actually. For people, it it might take months or years to come. It might mean that they're being held up in a certain place or detained in a certain place. They might be pushed back. Sometimes that means from Calais to the south of France and back. Sometimes, I mean, I've spoken to people who had lived in the UK for years, were deported back to Iraq. And when the bomb started falling again, they decided to go on a second journey. Uh, Some people have sort of been circulated around in places. So that's what journeys are like. Um, rather than, you know, just a simple flow that we think about. So when we think about a journey, we need to rethink that a little bit. Also, when we think about border, it's not a simple line as we, as we see on the map, but often there are whole zones where people are held up. Like the jungle in Calais, that itself is a whole border zone, right, where people are, um, are being held up. And the last point, as already mentioned earlier as well, what we need to rethink is the agency of migrants, refugees, and so on. Um, So often, and there's very good reasons for that, is to stress vulnerability. Because, of course, they are really vulnerable, especially when you sort of don't have rights or your rights are not respected and so on. But at the same time, that if we only see them as victims, um, then actually we don't realise that often they are really quite determined, but also that they have their own ideas about where they want to go. Right. So a lot of people, for instance, that we spoke to in Calais, do um, they want to go to the UK, they might have family, friend, connections, might be language, right? might be they think, better access to education or to jobs. Um, if we don't take these things into account, what happens? We'll just start redistributing people, which is what happens at the moment. Right? People are lucky enough to be redistributed or relocated, as it is called. Um, I'm not giving any choice in the matter. And that means there are a lot of secondary movements, right? So people go from one place to the next, and then they say, well, this is not where we want to be. We don't know anyone here. We don't know the language and so on, so they start moving again. And also, just to think about it, and all these time often people have very little access to education, if at all, or jobs and so on, right? So this is a huge issue. So before people get into the UK often, they already have a big gap there as well. So really, this is what we need to take into account. And just to get some examples from, uh, from Calais. So on one hand, the <coughs> camp in Calais is it's a horrible situation. But at the same time, people have opened their own restaurants. Um, you know, people are building houses. their communities, you know, their churches, their schools and so on. Even if they are being destroyed um, now and then by the French authorities, people sort of keep doing it. And it's interesting because you come back or you, you're there and you come back perhaps a few weeks later and you realize, oh, there's a new restaurant. Or suddenly, I think in the, it was in January, they had hotels. And I have got who in the jungle needs a hotel, <laughs> right? But it was really interesting to see that actually people do try and sort of Keep living as well, and setting up these kind of things. So again, I think that's something we uh, we need to take into account. Are there any other questions or comments so far?
1: A very quick one. I'm not sure if I'm running ahead here. I was wondering whether your alternative framing of, of, of the crisis necessarily presumes that there is a singular uh, crisis, regardless of the language, regardless mm. of, of the meaning that we ascribe to the term crisis. Uh, just to make it clear, I'm originally from Greece. So mm. obviously, uh, uh, this is what's on my mind. It, it, it seems quite clear to me that uh, this is not the singular European crisis because of Dublin, one and two, because of the fact that there is mm. no uh, mechanism to sort of distribute the, the responsibility to mm. deal with uh, uh, with refugees coming in. So uh, Greece and, and Italy. Hidomeni and Lapidus uh, bear the brunt of, yep. of what's going on. And I'm wondering whether that means that this is not a singular crisis. But
0: absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely right. And it's very good to, uh, to point out. There, there are many different issues in, 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 in different places. And absolutely, this idea, of course, people always speak about this idea of burden sharing, and it's absolutely not happening. Of course, most people are coming in um, through Italy and Greece. And the idea is, because of Dublin, you know, people have to claim asylum in the first country of arrival. Now, for a long time, Italy and Greece were like, well, just move through, right? They knew people didn't want to stay there. People didn't want to stay there anyway. You know, Italy and Greece didn't want to have all those people also because they had their own financial and economic crises at the same time, which is another aspect of that. But now with the new hotspot system, which I'll speak about in a minute, that doesn't happen so much anymore. Uh, So there is the relocation system whereby people get redistributed, but that's not really working. So we should have 160,000 people um, being relocated from Italy and Greece to to other countries. So they share some of the burden. I think so far it's about 6,000 people in the last six, seven months. So absolutely not working um, at all. Uh, yes, so there are there are many different issues. And sometimes, I remember, we shouldn't speak about crisis at all. But in some ways, actually, there are crises happening. So thanks, yeah. Um, right. Hotspots. <laughs> um, do we know what hotspots are? Um, just raise your hand if you don't know what a hotspot means. Um, okay, just in the context of this specific migration crisis. Or whatever you want to call it. Okay, that's fine. So some people are aware, it, some people are not aware. of So I'll do a little bit uh, of an introduction. Um, so this really goes to the second point of um, our um, research findings, which is the course of nature of migration management. So hotspots are, in a way, actually mechanisms of sorting and division, right? So the idea um, of the European uh, Union was because so many people are sort of coming through and basically Greece and Italy are not doing their work, right? They're letting all these people through um, and completely disregarding the Dublin regulation where people should claim for asylum in the first country of arrival in Europe. So they said, why don't we have a centralized system for this? So as soon as anyone comes in, at the shores either in Italy or Greece uh, we're going to they put them in in this hotspot center and this is where they get assessed straight away and we decide whether they are an asylum seeker or have a right to ask for protection or not whether they're just an economic migrant, in which case we'll send them back Now you can see the rationale and from EU perspective thinking okay that's great we've got a sorting mechanism going on there straight away people won't get through anymore so much who shouldn't be coming through so, um, to some extent, you can, you can see um, what's happening there. But that also meant that Italy and Greece were forced or really pressured by the EU to start fingerprinting absolutely everyone. Right? So we need to have and registering absolutely everyone. Officially, they're not forcefully fingerprinting people. In practice, they are. And they admit it. They say, well, you know, when you sort of take someone's fingers and just, you know, put them on the machine. So that that is happening. So what I want to say a little bit about is sort of in the, in the past year, so since the inauguration of these, um, these hotspots um sort of from um, about sort of a year ago. So we see them now in Lampedusa, Sicily, as well as on some of the Greek islands. Some of the other Greek islands actually refusing to uh, to have them. So this is um, this is the one in Lampedusa. Um, here we see the one in Lesbos actually. So you can see that that's much more a prison. And that's exactly one of the things that happened. So over the past um, year, um, what we see is these kind of spaces of what used to be spaces of transit and which we kind of optimistically call spaces of transit. When we started the research, we're saying, no, actually, there are much more spaces of detention, spaces of refusal and spaces of pushback. Because the other thing that the EU has been doing is saying we need to push up the number of people that people that we refuse. That's one of the aims rather than fairly assessing people and saying that actually we can't have too many people coming in. So be very strict. Um, And just say something about the kind of rights violations um, that are going on there. So first of all, what we see is that people are being separated on the basis of nationality. So according to international law, every individual case should be assessed individually depending on your own circumstances and background and history and so on, right, on your, on your story. What's happening in these hotspots is that they literally separate people out, saying, okay, you're from a West African country, for instance, you go on that side. Um, you're from a country where you might have a right to ask for protection, you go on that side. And it's a really physical uh, separation that's happening already in that hotspot. Right? Um, so, I mean, I'm absolutely against international, but it happens. Um, and most people that come from um, Western African countries and certain other countries are just straight away refused any claim to asylum. So again, that's apart from being separated on the basis of nationality, they're also not given the right to claim asylum. So of course that's um, a huge issue there as well. Now secondly, which I was already um, (coughs) mentioning earlier, we see that the kind of registration procedures become forced and exclusionary. So there's, for instance, the forced fingerprinting, as well as straight away you have to say sort of you know who you are, where you're from, and so on. Often there's very little help of translators. Another problem with this new hotspot system is that a lot of NGO, civil society organisations, are no longer allowed to get anywhere close to these processes. So they can't monitor it. So they don't really know what's going on. So the rights abuses are sort of only sort of later on they might be picked up, but they might not be. Um, So that's an issue there as well. But I want to show you one of the things that happens. So people come in. So this is specifically for Sicily, Lampedusa. People come in, are literally literally put into a line, sort of sat down at some point. They get this form. It's in Italian, so they can't actually read it. So it's often actually the officer that fills it in for them. The question is, what is your reason for coming to Italy? And you've got four choices. Is it to work? Is it to escape misery? To escape for other reasons? Or is it for family? Is there anything that strikes you about the set of answers? I
1: can say yes to all
0: <laughs> Okay, yeah. That's the first one. Anything else?
1: There's no real like, risk. I mean, it's it's uh, all uh, economic. Uh... Yeah.
0: yeah, there is no answer here that says I am fleeing persecution. I'm claiming asylum. It's just not an option. Unless you say to escape for other reasons. Right? So people are given a false choice. In Italian. Right? Um, now, I've heard that in the past few months, in some, and again, it's, it's it's different from one place to the next. In some places, they have now included that option after a lot of pressure. Um, in some places, this is still the case. Right? So a lot of people are like, well, I'm here to work because don't want to show that they're, you know, <laughs> That they're, that they're doing good. Of course, that's the wrong answer because then you are automatically an economic migrant. Right. So these are the things that are, sort of, that are going on. Um, and what happens to sort of a lot of people who are giving the wrong answer and or are the sort of wrong nationality. Um, and again, I don't know whether this is still happening. Some people say, some people say it is, some people say it isn't. Um, but what Italy was doing, they were giving them basically expulsion orders. So they hadn't had any right to claim asylum. They're given, again, a piece of paper in Italian that they didn't understand, saying you need to leave the country in, within seven days. That's it. Full stop. Pushed on the street. street. Right? So people no idea what, where they are, what is happening, what this piece of paper says. Right? And they're literally on the streets. I and mean, we saw you know, people literally on the streets in, in Sicily. Um, and of course, there were Italian lawyers there who were trying to help them. But in Sicily, a lot of Italian lawyers only speak Italian. So that didn't help either. So we're sort of trying with sort of translation trying to help them out. Um, and of course, they're not actually deported because for Italy, that's way too expensive as well. So they've just become illegalized. So they're just there in Italy. And of course, in, uh, uh, luckily, at least, there are a lot of, sort of religious organizations that help them out there. Um, and if they are from certain countries with which um, uh, Italy or sort of Europe has bilateral agreements, they might actually be sent back. But still, they haven't had this right to claim asylum. Um, okay, so, yes, I think that the final is set here as well, from space of transit to spaces of detained. So what we see in these hotspots as well is that basically they're just hack or prisons. So again, people who might be fleeing prosecution, who are just arriving at European shores in Italy or in Greece are basically just detained, and that's it. Officially, they can only be there for 72 hours then they have to move uh, on but of, often this is not happening so of course this is not a very clear fundamental rights breach and especially in Greece these spaces because so many people have come in as well um, these spaces are just really just horrible um, very poor conditions I mean you can see here as well it's a little at least in from what I've heard in, in Lampedusa um people can actually get out there's, there's a, um I think they can go out in and out anyway but there, I think there's also sort of a hole in the fence but at the same time, when you're at Lampedusa, you can't go anywhere. Right? So it's like a prison island anyway. So that's that. Um, okay. So moving on to the more informal transit points. So these are spaces like Calais, the um, the Paris Court I was speaking about, sort of other types of camps. Um, and what we see there, again, we see lots of rights violations as well, but of a slightly different nature. Um, and one of them really is increasing police violence, um, which is often justified on the basis of criminalising people, saying, well, actually, you don't have a right to be here. You're illegal here. So, you know, you're a criminal in a way. Um, that means you don't have the same rights. Uh, but at the same time, in terms, of, I mean, people have certain fundamental rights, which includes you not just being sort of rounded up. Uh, and beaten up by the police, but it does um, it does happen. Um, so let me just give you a few examples of that. Um, this place, so this is Lycée Jean Jaurès in um, in Paris, and we were there in October. And when it sort of started out, these were people who were already pushed away from a camp at uh, a, a metro station, uh, La Chapelle, uh, and then ended up here. About two hundred of them. And a few months later, when we were there, it was about 700,000. I me mean, nobody really knows. But there were, the conditions were absolutely appalling. Um, people just sort of sleeping everywhere. And um, a few days after, after we'd been there, after we'd left, it was forcefully evicted uh, by the French authorities. They did sort of put people onto um, coaches and sent them sort of outside to the countryside because that's what they do, the strategy of dispersal, uh, so that they can't create a community, they can't be together and so on, and say, claim asylum. But these were people that didn't want to claim asylum there right or sort of might have already been refused but not the porters and so on so a lot of people as soon as they could they would just go back right and and then set up a camp somewhere else so again it's you just get the circulation of, of, of people there um in Calais, i don't know whether you can see it here um but this is the camp in i think that was in october or december and you can see just the beginning here by the way this fence i don't know if you can see it Um, It's the same fence that we saw at the Olympics here in the UK. So this is the UK contribution uh, to border control. And you see it sort of around the court as well. So you can see here sort of whole living space. at some point the French authorities were, well actually all these people want to get onto the road because this is where the fence is there, because people want to get onto the lorries. Uh, So we can't have that. So we need to just clear the strip. And literally what they did is just clear the strip, just destroy people's houses. I mean it did get at that point a few days warning, so or a bit longer. Uh, So actually, people started moving their houses as well. But they called it the buffer zone, right? But of course, it just meant that it was easier to intervene. And what we've seen, especially after the Paris attack, but also before that, just police coming in every night, just tear-gassing the place, um, using water cannons. I mean, absolutely horrible. Um, So this idea that you can just destroy people's living spaces. And not only that, we saw a much bigger eviction in March this year uh, whereby a large part of the camp was destroyed, but the living space of 3,500 people uh, were destroyed at that time, including schools, churches, mosques, and so on. And initially the French authorities said, well, we won't touch those, but they did. And um, it hasn't actually put the number down at all. There's still, there were about 7,000 people there, there's still about 7,000 people there. They're just in much more cramped conditions. So rather than actually helping this, these kind of evictions, it just makes people more vulnerable. And also, we've seen now an increase in violence in the past few months, not just on behalf of the authorities, but also on right-wing groups um, in Calais, including disappearances for children. Um, So in in that regard, the conditions are really sort of um, quite appalling. Another thing we saw happening as well, uh, actually, we're just just too late. Um, One of our researchers, when we were in Milan, one of our researchers said, look, we'll go to the parks. Um, because this is where a lot of refugees are. It's just an informal formal camp. People stay for a few days, and this is also where they get railroad tickets and so on, right? So the people helping out. People get railroad tickets to go on to wherever they want to go. We go to the park, and it's just a the park. There's nothing, right? Just a normal park, as if nothing ever happened. And, and then we started thinking, this was a time that the Expo was running in Milan. So what the uh, the local authorities had done is like, well, we'll clean it up. And again, just... And the same with the railway station. The railway station was fine. And it was somewhere underground, literally, (laughs) on the railway station. There was now sort of a little space. At least they had put some money in it so the facilities weren't too bad. Uh, But again, people were just being pushed away and their living spaces had just been destroyed. Um, So we see a lot of that happening uh, across Europe. These are just a few examples of that, unfortunately. Okay. Um, at the same time, I do want to stress, as I said earlier as well, despite all this hardship and despite these awful conditions, people do have agency and people do, do stuff. Um, and so they do try and live on, create communities, create some sort of schools, um, and, and that sort of thing. So that, you know, that does happen as well. Um, finally, I wanted just to say a few things. It's not, it's not the focus of our research, but just some focus on a brief, few comments on education because it is something sort of that we came across now and then during our research. Of course, lack and limited education in transit points, especially in hotspots, which is just basically um, detention centres. But there's these huge gaps of people, right, who are on the move and actually don't really have access to education. Um, You see improvised education arrangement in informal transit points, like in Calais, for instance, but it's mostly sort of primary, secondary education, right, higher education. Um, absolutely not there so it's those people but also you know if they can they would sort of do some work or indeed for instance in calais most of the time is preoccupied with how i'm going to get to the uk right so this is what they do all night and in the morning they sleep um and then sort of they try again and, and you see this in other places as well often it's also just about survival right um so education is is, is but at the same time what i will also for people actually who were in asylum procedures for instance in different places that we came across especially in italy but also elsewhere, they're like, look, they're now asking me to to learn Italian. It's fine. But I speak English. (coughs) I want to do something in English. I want to have a higher education in English. I want to study, but I can't do it here. So I think just having sort of some online education would be, that's exactly what they were asking for. Look, If we can access something, some studying, whatever online, that would be fantastic. Uh, Because then despite the fact that we're in Italy, we can already start what we want to do, even if we sort of get stuck here, because, of course, in places like Italy, but also elsewhere, France, there's very little provision at that level in English but also I think what we found as well there is just also a need for education as well as sort of information about things like rights procedures you know what's happening in terms of asylum procedures but also what are my rights Where do I get information about you know how I'm just practical information about things right so again I mean that can be sort of online in other ways but I think that's some that's really important as well Often people in, in I mean some people in the jungle in Calais have some really good sense of what's going on But a lot of people have no idea how they can apply for asylum either in France or in the UK Right, so these kind of things instead sort of in terms of education, I think would be really important as well And there are some initiatives um, in, in Calais, there's now the refugee infobus, which does exactly that in different kind of languages uh, a group of people have set up a sort of a welcome to Europe guide which give you absolutely all the information you need in different languages. So there's one out already about Italy, which is about what are my rights, what are the procedures here, but also how do I take the train to Germany, right? Because obviously, also, I mean, that might be what people want to do. Um, so those are just, just a few slight comments. Thank you very much for listening. Can we just say uh, Thank you. Mm. Uh, uh.